Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-433 of the Run Run Live podcast. It's been a weird couple of weeks for me. I've been working out of the house, which which I'm a bit used to, but the new bit is this part about being on video calls all day long for many days in a row with no break. It can be really exhausting. And I've got a guy right now replacing all the trim boards on my house, and he's been doing this for a couple of weeks. So I've got him banging on the wall while I'm trying to talk to people. But that's the new normal, right? People just forget they're on these calls. And all kinds of crazy stuff goes on in the background. You, you hear, like, toilets flushing and dogs barking. And, you know, people take calls and start talking to somebody on the call. So it's you got to be careful. So him ripping the boards off has disturbed all the hornets that live in the eaves. And I had one wandering around my bathroom one morning. And as much as I tried to avoid that hornet, because I don't like conflict, it ended up stinging me a little. Hornets are ferocious little critters with bad attitudes. And up here in New England, the seasons have flipped and all is green and the mosquitoes and the ticks are out. And I'm harvesting lettuce from my, from my garden. Good year for lettuce. And immediately after we spoke last time, a couple weeks ago, I woke up with a back issue. And I don't know what I did, but my back locked up. It is a problem that I have had before when I do too much like snow shoveling or something like that. It's very painful. You can't bend and it hurts to sit. It hurts to walk. It just hurts. And your lower back is such an integral part of everything you do. It really really puts a damper on your activity. I got up the second morning of this back issue and basically had to crawl on my hands and knees to the bathroom. So I went to my Cairo on the third day. I got an expedited appointment and I got some immediate release. I mean, you could hear that pop across the office. I get these two vertebrae that get stuck together. And it's still pretty sore. Even today, or about two weeks later, it's still pretty sore. But I think that has a lot to do with spending so much time in the chair during the day. So I've started trying to do some of these meetings standing up or walking around. But you're still constrained and a little bit hunched. So i got to work on that. 
But the end result was I took a week totally off from training. And it was surprisingly good. It was relaxing. It was a good break to energize, to re-energize, to rethink what I want to do about my training and racing going forward. I'll talk about that a little bit today. I'm still on my nutrition plan and hovering around 170 pounds, just over 170 pounds. But I'm losing enthusiasm for it as we move into the summer and all the good eats and drinks that are part of that. I'm back to running now and I feel pretty good. I'm going to pivot to some longer trail-based training and I'm working on cooking up some events for the summer and the fall. But today we will talk to our friend, our old friend, Eric, who ran Leadville last year and the previous nine years, but I got to run with him last year. Uh, That was my pacing duty last year up over Hope Pass. I'm sure you all remember that. Most fun I had all last year. And so he went out over Memorial Day weekend and did something amazing. He ran across Missouri, just up and ran across Missouri. So we're going to talk about that. In section one, I'll talk about taking that week off. Talk about that a little bit. And in section two, I'll talk about some of the ways you can recharge in today's weird hyper work Zoom call world. As I wrote this on a fine, cool morning that looked like it was going to emerge into a humid summer day, I had a purple t-shirt on. And I've been wearing mostly shirts with collars to try to look somewhat professional on the video. But that morning, when I sat and wrote this, I saw a nice purple t-shirt under the pile, so I was wearing that. And did you know that purple is the royal color. It was a prized color in classical times. And the Greeks and the Romans somehow figured out that there was this predatory land snail in Lebanon that they called murex, and it secreted this color that made purple dye. They could make purple dye. And in the Eastern Roman Empire what we would refer to as the Byzantine Empire, but that's a construct of modern historians. They just called themselves Romans. Anyhow, they referred to a person being of royal blood or royal pedigree as being born in the purple. Now, isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing how we humans can make the leap from snail snot to justification of royalty? We really do have an outstanding ability to make stuff up and believe in it. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The seven benefits of taking a week off. What did we learn? Due to a sore back... I took last week totally off from training. And what happened? Was it good? Was it bad? What kind of effect does taking a week off have? Well, here are seven things that I took away from the experience. Number one, reduced workout stress and workout guilt. I found that having a week without any workouts was a great stress reliever for me each day. I didn't have to worry about how I was going to squeeze that run in. It gave me a great sense of relief. 
and freedom in the mornings, in the evenings. It was refreshing. And since I had given myself permission to take this week off, I had no races pending. I had no guilt, no worry around missing out or losing fitness or not being ready. It was relaxing and refreshing. Number two, no loss of fitness. A week is not enough time to lose any significant fitness. You won't even notice it. You can drop right back into your routine at the end of the week without any worry. You will feel great when you ease back into training. Those first couple of workouts will be awesome. Number three, a chance to reassess. With that cessation of the daily worry about your workout, you get an opportunity to reassess your training. Are you doing what you love? Or has it become just another chore? Maybe it's time to train for something else. Are you getting what you want out of it? Is it providing that value for you? Now, this break was a good pivot point for me to think about what I was doing, assess how it was going, and tweak my plans a little bit for the future. Number four, watch out for those calories. Now, if you throw the anchor out and just stop training, you need to be aware that you just can't keep eating. And you definitely can't fill the extra time with eating. Although the choice of foods is more important than the calories, you still need to understand that you're burning fewer calories. I went into this break lean and watching my nutrition, so I really didn't see much of an impact. But by the end of the week, I found I had one or two of the pounds that I had lost over the previous months. They had reappeared. Number five, what's important? As you're in your break, you can think about what's important. Why are you doing this? Are you still in that chasing the dream phase of your endurance career where you need to constantly push and find the next big thing? Or is it time to think about more of a lifestyle approach, maybe a lifestyle-friendly approach to your passions? And I found myself thinking about if I really needed to run another qualifying marathon, especially this year. Is that where I get my joy from? Or can I find ways to use my training to do things with the people I like to hang around with? Can I take my foot off the gas pedal? Do a little cruising, maybe? Number six, do you want to make working out a chore? Do you really want to do that? And this begs the question, if you feel so much relief from the cessation of training, maybe you've made it into a chore. Obviously, it's a habit. Habits are usually good because they let you execute, basically autonomously, to enable lifestyle choices you've decided are beneficial. Habits, you get to do. But chores, you have to do. Where does your training fall on that emotional spectrum? And number seven, attitude adjustment. And when you do renew your passion with vigor you will find your attitude is refreshed as well. You have a renewed sense of purpose because you put it aside and thought about it for a while. It's a fresh thing that you see with new eyes, that new love, that sense of discovery, that joy. And the best way I can describe this week off is like a deep breath. And you've all been there. You're on a long run. You're tired. You stop in the trail. You lift your head. You take a deep breath. You settle your body. 
you settle your soul. And then you keep going with renewed energy and a resigned purpose because, you know, that's what you do. And now for today's featured interview. Let's get started. Eric, so why don't you give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and why we're talking? All right. Well, a few different answers to that question from a personal perspective. I'm from Minnesota originally and uh, have uh, raised my family down here in St. Louis. Been here probably 35 years or so. And from a career standpoint, I've been in the hotel business for almost 40 years, uh, not quite. And from a running perspective, I uh, have always enjoyed running. Uh, we never did it seriously early on and didn't run uh, track or cross country, but it got into it a little bit later in life. I ran my first marathon up at Grandma's Marathon in 2000, just as a bucket list item and loved the feeling of crossing the finish line and just wanted more of that stuff and did it again the next year. And then the next year, a couple of uh, marathons and then started getting the bug of maybe can I get my time down quick enough to uh, qualify for Boston. And after 11 or 12 times of that, I just barely made it into that. And I've qualified each year for Boston for the past 12 and then got into ultra running and uh, have run the Leadville 100 and finished there for the past uh, eight years. And I was hoping for nine this year, but the, the race was canceled. So that's, I think, under 200 words. Yeah, good. That's a bad thing they canceled Leadville because, you know, you're not getting any younger, man. Well, thank you for that reminder. And you, <laughs> you know that better than most people, having been out there and pacing me and, and seeing what that race can do to people last year. So appreciate your help. That was uh, <laughs> that was a highlight of my year, Eric. That was the most fun I had all last year. So, and that's what I really miss is these events, right? It's getting out and doing these events, and we're all sort of struggling to say, what do we do to sort of fill the void? And uh, you found a way to do this, and this all came together pretty fast. So tell us what you did. Sure. As everybody knows here, they uh, had postponed Boston, which has now been canceled, and probably with the rest of our fall races, I would guess. Uh, but I had all the rest of my ca uh, races canceled, and I kind of measure time through these races each year. You know, it's Boston in the spring. It's the in March, yeah. it's the A-Slinger 24-hour race, which got canceled. Yep. Grandma's Marathon, which I've done 20 years in a row, and do the Grandma's Double, that got canceled. Then the Silver Rush 50, and then the big one, Leadville, which is always my A race. So at that point, it was kind of like, boy, what do you make out of this year? And yeah, so I was looking kind of for the next challenge and something I've always been thinking about, I shouldn't say always, but probably the past eight or 10 years is running the length of the Katy Trail, which is a rail to trail in uh, Missouri. It runs uh, just a little bit southeast of Kansas City, all the way to a little bit north of uh, St. Louis, 237 miles as advertised. And I was to find out it was longer than that. Yeah. And uh, it is the longest rail to trail in the United States. And it's spectacular. It's a beautiful, beautiful trail. I've run parts of it in St. Louis, but thought, you know, what it would be like to run this from start to finish. So I was looking for the time to be able to do it because it is several days. And then also kind of what's your why? And uh, I needed probably more of a why than just a personal challenge. And what's happening in the industry that I work in, in, in hotels, has been uh, pretty challenging over the past few months. Uh, travel has been in the bullseye, obviously, of the pandemic. And uh, a lot of our frontline team members who I have a tremendous amount of respect for 
are out of work right now and they're missing out on a financial paycheck and they're missing out on a psychological paycheck because they like taking care of people and they weren't able to do that. So I thought, how could we combine these two things into one and uh, try and make something happen? So uh, put together a, um, a fundraiser and it came together, as you mentioned, on very short notice where uh, we were able to put to a, a GoFundMe together for uh, raising dollars that would go directly to people on the front lines, the housekeepers, the people that clean your rooms, the people that check you in, the people that make your food and get some dollars into their pockets and remind them that we're thinking about them. That's kind of the overview of uh, the genesis of all of this. It must have come to bed together quickly because I didn't hear about it until you're already doing it. Well, and that's because I didn't really think about it until right before. I, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but we really didn't pull the trigger until like two or three days beforehand. And there were a bunch of reasons for that. It's not the ideal time to run in Missouri. I looked at the forecast and I knew that there was going to be storms, lots of lightning and heat, 90 degrees, 90% humidity. And I've got too much Scandinavian blood in me to run well in those conditions. But it was kind of like, I don't know when there'll be another time. It'll never be perfect. Find a, a three or four day period when it's going to be perfect. It's just not going to happen. So yeah. I decided to pull the trigger on it, shot a quick video for the GoFundMe charity account and uh, let her fly. And uh, it, it turned out a lot better in many respects than I ever could have expected. Yeah, you generate an amazing amount of money by doing this. Yeah, you know, just that was crazy, crazy, crazy big money. Yeah, I was thinking maybe if we can get a couple thousand dollars and put this into somebody's pocket who needs it, that would be worth it. Yeah, um, we set a goal of ten thousand, and uh, within like twenty-four hours, we'd hit that. And then by the time we started running, I think we were at twenty thousand. And uh, it was kind of like at that point, it's like, okay, it's not just letting me down; it's letting other people <laughs> down. That was a great impetus to keep going when there were times when you didn't really want to. How did you get so many people to pay attention? Is it just because people? are looking for something to pay attention to and you hit the sweet spot? I think that's a lot of it. I mean, there's a lot of fundraisers that are going on in the restaurant industry. They've done a really nice job of highlighting the plight of the bartenders and the servers. There wasn't as much going on in the hotel business. I didn't want to start a foundation, but I found a group called the Above and Beyond Foundation and they were focused on frontline hospitality workers. So those people that are near and dear to my heart that I see working and hard and just great people who love to serve. And so I called them up and we were able to work something out and they had started focusing their funding on these frontline, uh, basically helping hospitality grant aid program where they give $500 grants to these uh, frontline team members who are out of work. So yeah. it just kind of, I think they were able to help spread the word and it touched a nerve, I think, with people that are in the industry and also people that are kind of like, okay, well, yeah, I've been thinking about the healthcare workers and all that. That's obvious. Yeah. But they're, how about all the people that just are at home right now because they can't work? Yeah, there was a poll there. I see it. That's excellent. Good. And I've seen a bunch of things like that through this. You know, we're going to go back and have 100 business cases to study after this is all over. Because like that virtual race through Tennessee that we signed up for, that went gangbusters. But now I see like 10 other people trying to do similar things. And they're like a Led Zeppelin, a lead balloon. Yeah, it's like how many virtual races can you run at the same time? Yeah. Right. No, that was Lazarus Lake, Gary Cantrell that started that one. And I think he expected like 200 people to sign up for it. And last I saw, they were like over 19,000, which is yeah. crazy. Globally. Globally. Right. Yeah. 
And I only signed up because of all you guys bugging me, all you well, alters who are crazy. Yeah, peer pressure is a big part of signing up for any race. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? So then you get into the nuts and bolts of this arc. You still got to go out and run 240 miles, right? Which for you, you're like, okay, I can do that, right? That's a long ultra, but the trail doesn't have all the elevation gain in it. You got plenty of oxygen. No, I mean, it's it's not like you're getting up to the top of Hope Pass and feeling lightheaded and wanting to uh, expel whatever you've taken into your stomach at that point, as you are well aware. So lots of oxygen and relatively flat, but it's still 245 miles. And the most I had ever done before was 115 miles in 24 hours. So I knew I could handle that, but I also knew what I felt like after that. And I, I was wondering what would happen when you got to that point where you pretty much thought you've already reached your limit. And so that was part of what I was curious about. And that's what made it such a challenge is just not knowing. Maybe I think it was Sir Edmund Hillary said something along the lines of it. It's not an adventure if you know what the outcome is going to be. So that was part of the draw. So you did it in three days and... 14 hours. 14 hours. Three days, 14 hours? Okay. So we average like 60, 70 miles a day? Uh, yeah, right around that, that range. So started out on a Friday morning. This is Memorial Day weekend. Started out at 4 a.m. Uh, Tammy, who's been my crew chief the whole way through, finally relented and said, okay, I'll help you out with this as long as you can have some people running with you through the night. And I was very fortunate at last minute to pull a couple of people in, Pacer Dan that you're familiar with, and then Frank yep. Evans, who were amazing. But started out at four in the morning with some storms going on, chasing us through the first 60 miles or so. But the temperatures were cool, so we were pretty cool on that. Got through the first 115 miles in the first 30 hours or so and felt pretty much like death. And yeah. just uh, at that point, we went and... Were you planning on running straight through? No, I wasn't going to run the full 245. I don't know a whole lot about running these multi-day events, but I do know that sleep management is something that's important. Yeah. And I think what I learned was you don't need a lot of sleep on something like this to recharge. I got done with that 115 miles and had no idea how I was going to get started again. Took three hours of sleep, woke up like a, a new man, and I was ready to go and started running again. So that was one of the biggest lessons for me. So you got how many hours of sleep? I got three hours after 115 miles. So that, then, but, uh, but that would have put you at what, um, like, how long did it take you to do the first 115? Probably around 30 hours. 30 so hours. So that's, that's like a, a normal 100 miler, sort of at a, at a slow pace. Yeah. And uh, so get going again and did another, I don't know, 50 or 60 miles, got a little more sleep, did another 50 miles or 40 miles or so, a little more sleep. The problem is that you keep building on all of this. So you've got all the lactate, you've got the pain, the discomfort, the mental, can I do this? And that all just kind of grows exponentially. So that's the challenge with this one here. Yeah, I mean, in a normal ultra, you get some really high highs and you get some really low lows. I mean, how does that play out? Is it just like you say, it went to suck and then you just stayed in suck for two and a half days? No, I think actually the suck lasted from about mile 100 to 115 because I was so sleepy. I was hallucinating. I'm swerving all over the trail. The trees are talking to me. You see those in the middle of the night. You've seen this in the in the woods where you shine your headlamp out there and you got all these beady little eyes staring back at you. 
Yeah. yeah. So all of that turned into like 15 of the most miserable miles I've ever been on. So it couldn't get any worse than there. And actually, once I realized that with a couple hours sleep, you could kind of bounce back, the rest of it was just putting one foot in front of the other. It wasn't fast, but it was more a matter of just kind of keeping going. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can hike a lot of it in that time and uh, keep moving, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what were you eating through all this? Did it even matter? Were you even thinking about that? I mean, you've done this stuff so many times that probably doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, well, I, I wasn't using that sword that I was using with you <laughs> up the top of Hope Pass. That didn't turn out well. Uh, yeah. But I, you know, I did. Well, you got to you got to mix it with the water, I think. Yeah. I know that was a good lesson. Uh, <laughs> so people have to go back and listen to that one from uh, last year. But just start out with the goose and the the honey stinger waffles at the beginning. But then after that, it was like you want real food, and so yeah. like a sandwich, a burger. And then at the end, the final 50 miles is like people were holding pieces of watermelon in front of me just to keep me moving. And, and that was enough. That was, yeah. that was good motivation because the yeah. watermelon at that point was awesome. So you got some weather too cycled through there. So you got one hot day and then the storms came through and broke the hot day. How did that work out? We had a real warm day, and uh, again, that's just slow, and I just have a tough time in the warm yeah, weather. Yeah, hate that stuff. Storm came through, and we had hail. Fortunately, I come up on a trailhead, when, and Tammy, my wife and, and crew chief, happened to be there, so I was able to hop into the, to the car just as the hail started coming down. And once that let up, it was still raining a little bit, and I thought, okay, this is past. I got out on the trail again. And it just opened up again, completely soaked, but it was about 20 degrees cooler. And it was like, oh, that was amazing. I was back to nine minute miles for the next 10 miles or so. And there's a little lightning there, which gives you a little bit more motivation as well. Yeah. Uh, so that helped out quite a bit, actually. Yeah, it's the change of pace too, right? Anything that goes on that is sort of a change of the pace, that picks you up a little bit. Well, and you do this looking for adventure. I mean, it's like there were so many times out on the trail where something like that would happen and you just find yourself grinning. Yeah. You're miserable. You feel terrible, but you find yourself grinning and say, this is what living feels like. It was great. And you had um, blister problems, which you don't ever have blister problems. No. And of course, up in, uh, in Leadville, when you're high at elevation and the dry air, it's not a real big problem. But I've heard from, you know, this is kind of a chat trail. And I've heard that people will get blister issues on that. And I developed those pretty early. So I had blisters on my blisters. and uh, But after a while, everything else hurts so much, you don't even pay attention to your feet. Yeah, so I always thought it was fun when you look down and you see the blood stains through your shoes. You know, that that's something to, to brag about, I guess. Yeah, I'll have a nice bouquet of black toes here to share at some point. Yeah, yeah that stuff's terrible. And um, did you have like some towards the end there when you thought it was done? Like I got a couple of messages from you that didn't seem too chipper. That you, were, you know, you'd never quit, but you know, I kind of felt like you had some low spots there. Yeah, there were, but oh, see, you're going to have those anytime you go through. I mean, if you just run a marathon, you're going to have some low spots, but certainly in a hundred miler or anything beyond that, I think if you're trained up reasonably well, uh, which I, I think I was, I had some big high miles, uh, some 80, 90, close to hundred mile weeks, a few weeks before. So I felt physically like I was in good shape. So then it's just a matter of dealing with the demons and, uh, 
just battling those and seeing who's going to win. And I had a big enough why in terms of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to try and accomplish. I had no idea what 245 miles really meant until I did it. But also, I just felt like I had a really good cause. And once you saw so many people piling on, it was kind of like, okay, it's more than just me. And it was fun to do it for something that I thought I think it was important and resonated with people. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The other thing that you got out of this was you got the FKT. Yeah, so the KT. So the FKT, for those that have not heard of this, is called the fastest known time. And this is kind of a new frontier where uh, you don't need races. All you need is a stretch of interesting trail uh, that uh, lots of people like to traverse and just see who can do it the fastest. So uh, they had a, a fastest known time, an FKT for the Katy Trail previously that was, let's see, three days, 18 hours, 12 okay. minutes, and three seconds. Okay. So I figured with the, the paces you were doing that you were the first one to do it. That's why you got the FKT because not saying you're slow, but I'm saying we both know people who could do it in half that time, right? Oh, there's no doubt. So if yeah. anybody's thinking about picking an FKT, yeah, you can find one out there that you could probably beat. And uh, it's interesting because there's a guy that's based here around the St. Louis area. His name is John Cash. He is an, uh, a really serious, very talented ultra runner. He's come in second in the Ball State 500. He's been on like the USA team. And the same weekend that I was running Katy Trail, he told me he was thinking about doing the same thing I was doing, but he had a couple extra days. So instead, he ran the FKT for the Route 66 from Oklahoma uh, border of Missouri all the way to the Illinois border of Missouri. So it was just dumb luck that I ended up getting there before him. By the yeah. time this thing goes, he'll probably be ahead of me. So I will have uh, owned the FKT for maybe two weeks or so. We'll see what happens. Yeah, but so you know, it's two hundred, just two hundred forty-five miles. You never know what's going to happen in two hundred forty-five miles. Yeah, used to say that about twenty-six miles, didn't we? Yeah, he could run into one of those copperheads I did, or cougars, or whatever. Yeah, some wildlife. I hope yeah, that's or, not the case, John Cash. But you know what? It's or it could flood to... out. You know, it could flood out. There's... Yeah, we had actually a couple of detours where the floods had knocked out bridges, and we ended up. That's why we ended up with two hundred forty-five miles instead of two hundred thirty-seven. We had to go hit the roads to go around the bridges that were washed out. So I don't know. How to, I don't really know how to ask this question, Eric. But you've got, like I said, I want to be like you when I grow up. But you've got this certain strength about you in these things. And I mean that from a leadership point of view, right? And I don't mean to make you uncomfortable because you're from Minnesota and you've got that ah shucks uh, farm boy act going on. But do you think about any of this stuff as you're doing it? Or does it just come naturally the way you're, you're naturally leading in these things and naturally doing these things and pulling people into your gravity well? Yeah, that's a tough question to, to answer because um, I don't know that I have enough uh, self-awareness to be able to <laughs> answer that. But I like to finish what I start. And I mean, it just seems like that's just kind of what you do. And especially when you start to get so many people involved in something that's important, you know, whether mm. it's, it's something that you're doing for yourself or for your family or, or the people that count on you or that you count on at work. And uh, you just 
you don't quit. That's one of the things I, I love about Leadville, where Ken Clover and you were there last year, where he tells everybody you're better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. And I just think that's true. And this was just kind of another way to prove that to myself, that uh, you can take on big challenges and do hard things. And you know, there's no guarantee of success, but that's part of where the adventure comes from. So that's not a good answer to your question, but uh, I don't know that I could answer it. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, I'm from New England. You're from Minnesota. There's not a lot of emotions here. We're not going to be hugging it out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, what'd you learn from all this? Uh, well, we probably just covered it to a certain extent. I think uh, you can do hard things. And uh, even if there's no guarantee of success, doesn't mean you shouldn't try. You're going to learn something about yourself. I think uh, with a big goal like this, putting it out there publicly is helpful. And it's not just for this 245 mile jaunt, but I remember when I was first going to do my first marathon or when I was going to try to qualify for Boston. I mean, I told everybody when I, uh, Leadville Marathon uh, or Leadville 100. And I think uh, having that level of accountability is helpful. The other thing that I learned this time around is uh, just that there's a lot of very generous people out there that want to help those people who in some way even no matter how anonymous it might have been, uh, have touched their, their lives in a positive way, either by making sure that their rooms are clean or being friendly and smiling at them and serving them in whatever way. And it was very gratifying to see so many people out there that just wanted to say, hey, I want to be part of that. And in my own way, I want to feel good about uh, helping somebody out who's going through a tough time. So yeah. that, that restored, uh, I mean, I've always had a pretty high opinion of human nature, but that certainly restored it if it's taken any ding here recently. Yeah, I mean, that's something I think we all got to remember, right, is that uh, the bad stuff's still in the minority, right? And we all still have the power to affect anything we want to affect. So I think you got to have a, an attitude of abundance, as hard as it is sometimes. Yep. And so. you've preached that for the past 10 years. And uh, yep. I, I got into Leadville, which is certainly a precursor to this, but in large part to uh, a lot of uh, mentors. And I put you in that list there, Chris. I remember listening to all your stuff. So it's, you got to be careful what you say because you're inciting <laughs> things in people. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's, that's uh, as long as I don't have to do it, you know, <laughs> what's the rub? All right, man. It was good to see you. We'll let you go. Anything else you want to say or push? No. Uh, I mean, if we'll leave the GoFundMe up there. So it's GoFundMe uh, charity and hundred percent of your, your uh, donations are tax deductible. And if you just go on to GoFundMe and search for helping hospitality, Katie trail run, you can uh, go find uh, some place to go throw a few shekels in if, if you uh, feel the desire to help out. So thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. That resonates, right? Because just remember that woman who helped you get a cab at 4.30 in the morning in Manhattan at the front desk or wherever it was. Someone has done a solid for you in the hospitality industry, right? And now's your chance to pay it back. So I think that's a great cause. Yep. You can be there, Karma. All right. See you, man. Great time. Right. Yeah, Chris. Thanks a lot. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Recharge, subtitle, <laughs> eat, wait, what is it? Eat, sleep, work, repeat. 
All right, working better, recharging. I had a couple of days this week where I was on Zoom calls back to back. I never left the chair from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. I was exhausted. Now, I have always been a remote worker. I like being remote. I don't want to drive an hour to sit in a cubicle. And I'm a phone guy, too. I have always been on conference calls, and I know how to use the technology with all its foibles, but this new version of work is weirdly taxing, and you wonder why. I've noticed a couple of things. One is I'm working across multiple time zones, so it tends to bleed out the edges with early calls and late calls, and I just don't have enough energy to be my best self for 12 or 14 hours, or 10, or even 8. I start running out of gas in the afternoon. I can show up, but I'm not sure how much value I'm adding. It's also not as predictable as it sounds. It's quite variable. I've noticed that most calls run over, and when the call runs over, there's no time to grab a fresh cup of tea or go to the bathroom, and there is not time to prepare for the next call. And I've also noticed a lot of calls get canceled at the last minute. And you would think this would give you some extra time and energy in the balance, but it doesn't, because it's last minute and unplanned, and you really can't spin up a new project in that gap effectively. And with this variability and negative overlap, there's no time for you to consolidate your notes or digest your thoughts, digest that meeting content, which is bad because you can't fix it in your mind to act on it effectively. The variability leads to task swapping, which eats more time and makes you even more inefficient. And it also leads to dual tasking, which also makes you less efficient. I mean, if you can work on a presentation while listening to a call, you probably don't have to be on that call to begin with. And since my customers and stakeholders are across time zones, I get a lot of meetings dropped into my lunchtime, which I really don't mind. I've never been a parochial lunch eater. I snarf down my salad at my desk and I keep moving, but it's just another sort of loss of oxygen in the day, which ends up dragging down your energy. And where does all this lead? It leads to exhaustion. And exhaustion leads to bad choices, whether those be professional choices, personal choices, or nutritional choices. Once you get into the cycle You then carry that exhaustion into your weekends, and now you're not getting the recharging you need there either. And with those early calls, your morning routine gets bunged up. With those late afternoon calls, your evenings get messed up. But ironically, you don't complain, do you? You don't challenge the system because you're proud of your work ethic, right? It's part of your self-image, right? That's who you are. You're a hard worker. And this is where you become your own mill boss. You become complicit in your own exhaustion. You're that old guy from the 1800s smoking a cigar and saying, well, if you don't want to do the work, I can get a hundred others who'd love to have the job, right? So what can you do? First thing is to stop being your own mill boss and stop acting like a mill worker. Figure out what work pattern you need to be effective and establish your own norms. You don't have to be militant, but mark that focus time or that lunch hour in your calendar as busy and enforce it. Certainly be aware of company culture. Don't be multi and militant, but 
be your own advocate. You don't have to explain to anyone why you block two hours of focus time. If they ask, you simply and unemotionally say, that is part of my productivity and effectiveness strategy. And the more you let people know, if you let them know you're blocking time, if they know, they will be less likely to violate those norms. And in my experience, there's no negative ramifications unless you're mouthy about it or do something crazy. And the next thing you can do is step away from your desk once in a while. Get up. Get out. Go for a walk. Take a five or ten minutes. Walk around the yard of that house you made 30 years of mortgage payments on. It's okay. And one of my strategies, which if you're setting up the meeting... Set it up for 45 minutes instead of an hour. Not 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Not an hour, 45 minutes, right? Because most people won't steal that 15-minute gap. And even if the meeting runs over, you're going to have a gap to work with. These days, you also need to, to proactively figure out how to socialize. Before the apocalypse, socialization just happened. Now you need to proactively get some human interaction. So figure that out. And as we discussed before, many times, one of the best things you can do to combat exhaustion is to get a good night's sleep. Even if you have to work into the evening, don't try to make up for it by extending the day. Rack out. Call it a day. Tomorrow's another chance. Go to sleep. And on the other side, of course, as we have talked about many times, also, have a good morning routine and protect it. Don't switch on the news or the social media. Take that morning time to get some quiet time. Take a 20-minute walk. Do some reading and writing. Do some prep. Even if you have that morning call that gets dropped in there, take those 20 minutes to prepare your mind for the day. Don't use that time to catch up. Use it to recharge. And going back to walks, walks are great. The best advice I got last week when I was complaining on social media that I was exhausted was go for a walk. More specifically, take some of my calls as walking calls. So get those headphones in, go for that walk. And have lunch. Even if you're not a lunch person, like me, try to protect that time and get some calories in. Do something besides work for a couple of minutes in the middle of the day. It prevents that late day exhaustion. A nice fresh garden salad with some nuts. Yeah, that'll help your body and your soul. And focus on one thing at a time. Really, stop trying to do two things at once. It's really not, doesn't make you any more efficient. If it's worth doing, it's worth focusing on. And check yourself, because you may be the source of this exhaustion pathogen for your coworkers. Are you sending emails on Sunday? Are you responding to emails after 9 p.m.? Because that sends a message. You're playing into your inner mill worker's norms. Don't be a spreader. <laughs> be an enabler. Choose the deep work things that move the needle. When all this reactive work and calls, when it all gets stacked up, we forget about the important stuff. The stuff that Covey called important, but not urgent. Find a way to block some focus time for those things that will make a difference. They can find anyone to be administratively productive. You bring value with the deep work.
Of course, there is administrative tasks that just have to be done. There's no sense in procrastinating about those or whining about that stupid TPS report. Just do it and move on. Don't waste time on it. And I'll leave you with one final tip about email. So set up rules to automate the filing of your email. So as soon as they come in, they get shunted to another folder. Out of your inbox. And this way, when you open your email, there won't be a 100 unread messages in your inbox. There may still be 99 unread messages, but they'll be spread around in different folders. So you can triage and prioritize. And that really helps with the emotional overwhelm of seeing 300 emails in your inbox. And that's all I have for you today. I welcome any other thoughts as well, as we all try to be our best selves in the apocalypse. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have run across Missouri to the well-deserved microbrewery. That is the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 433, done and done. Thank you for your company. All righty, so what now? I have decided to pivot my training a bit for the summer instead of holding this this weird holding pattern of marathon training. I'm going to target some ultra-type distance trail running, not super long, not 100-miler, but maybe 50K-ish, and some casual bike riding. And this is for a few reasons. First, I feel I'm I'm getting into a rut. I'm a bit too fragile with all this race-specific training, and I need to broaden it up for a cycle. And second, if any races are going to be run this fall, they're probably going to be those longer, smaller trail races. And bike riding to get some cross training, but also most of the guys in my cohort can't run as much anymore, so some casual bike riding is a good way to socialize with my friends. I'm contemplating organizing a Fondo, which is a a long, slow bike ride. That's what they call them, Fondos. I'm contemplating organizing one around Groton with my running club for sometime in July. Some sort of longer trail run, perhaps on the Wapak Trail for Labor Day, which coincides with, by the way, Kill Two Birds with One Stone by logging 26.1 miles of that for the virtual Boston that I haven't signed up for yet because they haven't sent the email, but they gave me my money back for Boston, and they're supposed to have a virtual race sometime that week. So there you go. I'm always scheming. And I am behind on my virtual race across Tennessee from taking that week off. I'm four days behind, which isn't actually a lot. That's only like 20-something miles. But, you know, some longer sessions now will help me get back in the hunt so I can finish before August 31st. Eric, by the way, with all his shenanigans, he's finishing like as we speak. So, okay, those are all my loose, weird, cloudy plans. And I'll I'll tell you a couple of stories and a dad joke. A couple of Ollie stories and a dad joke for Father's Day and we can all get on with our lives. Switching back to the trails is good because I can take Ollie with me, and Ollie needs the exercise. The challenge is he's not leash trained, and he's a bit of a nightmare to run with on a leash in the woods. With the apocalypse, the woods are just stuffed with cranky people, and unless it's off hours, I have to put him on the leash. I have this standard six-foot leash that I run with. And he goes right to the end of that and pulls. No matter how much I correct him, he's constantly leaning on the leash. 
and it is exhausting. <laughs> it's also a bit dangerous because he stays right in my line of sight and occludes my line on the trails, so you can't really see where you're putting your feet. Uh, and it makes it hard to carry anything in your hands with all that sort of jerking about and having to pay attention. And unlike Buddy, Buddy loved to stop at the ponds and go for a swim. Ollie won't go near the ponds or the lakes to get a drink because he's decided he's afraid of them. And he won't drink out of my water bottle either because he doesn't trust me not to squirt them. <laughs> I'm going to have to get some sort of collapsible dish for him that I can carry with me. There's a, a boom population of rabbits and squirrels and chipmunks this year. And he likes to take off after those as well, which also is interesting. Uh, Friday when we were out, he was on leash, on that shorter leash, and a big snake ran across the trail in front of us. I guess slithered would be the verb there, but really fast across the trail. And I saw it, and I calculated its progress, and I could see that it would be well out of our way by the time our paths intersected, and I didn't bother to break my pace. Because we don't have any poisonous snakes in New England. Okay, technically, there's an eastern timber rattlesnake and the copperhead viper, but those are both endangered species, and you have a better chance of getting hit by lightning. Plus, they're really obvious, these snakes. If you see them, they're super obvious. They don't look like anything else. It wasn't one of those, just a big black snake. Probably a rat snake. Anyhow, Ollie saw that snake and... <laughs> put on the full stop and jump backwards, causing me to have to jump straight up in the air and vault over them. So it's kind of funny how the fear of snakes is so deeply ingrained in mammals. A lot of bad blood, I guess, between us and those those reptiles over the, over the millennia, right? And then I had him out Saturday on the trails, mostly on leash, and he was a nightmare. You'd think he'd get tired of dragging my fat ass around in the woods after a few miles, but he just didn't. And he joined me today for another hour and 45 minutes on a combination of rail trail and roads uh, with my buddies. And I was on the rail trail early, 7 a.m. on the rail trail. And so I brought my old iPhone, my headphones, figured I'd be all alone at the 7 o'clock cool Sunday morning, catch up on some audio listening. And I brought the extensible leash, which I think is about 15 feet long, because he pulls less on that one. He can get out in front of me and pr probably has something, some built-in resistance and partly because it gives him just more line to play with. But you know, Apocalypse... I was to have no peace. The trail was packed. Bikers, joggers, walkers, some lady screaming into her cell phone in Spanish. It was like taking public transit on a Friday afternoon when the Red Sox are playing. And I had to take my head headphones out because the earbuds out because so I could hear the traffic or somebody was going to die. And I had to keep the, the dog close. The new herd of uh, apocalypse bikers they don't go very fast. Some are barely moving faster than my running pace, which is fine. I don't begrudge them that. But it takes forever for them to catch you and pass you, and especially if you're trying to control a mental border collie. If you're, head, if you're a heads-down cyclist training away at 20-plus miles an hour, you just zoom by, right? That's half a second. And those guys pay attention a lot. But I, I would say if you're one of those those people doing that, you know, 
going 20 miles an hour in aero, I would stay away from public rail trails for a while. It's a bit of a carnival. All right, so enough whining, enough complaining. We had a great, great run. Had a great day. Here's your dad joke for Father's Day. A hamburger walks into a bar. He goes up to the bartender and says, Hey, I'd like a bowl of chili, please. And the bartender looks at him and says, Sorry, we don't serve food here. Keep it moving, friends. It ain't all bad, is it? I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And, of course, to take you out is track number 12. It's downhill from here. We're getting there. From Brian Sheff, the rock opera by the Nays, called Hold On Tight to Your Dreams.
got a hold on tight. 